Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Attention Deficit Disorder Expert Podcast Series by Attitude Magazine. Hey everyone, it's Susan Coffin and you are listening to Attitude Magazine's ADHD Experts Audio. I am so pleased to welcome back one of Attitude's most informative speakers, leading ADHD expert, Dr. William Dodson, speaking about a topic of intense interest to many of you, and that is how ADHD affects our perceptions, our emotions, and our motivation. The fact is that the textbook symptoms of attention deficit disorder, inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity, the ones often described in DSM, the literature, they really fail to reflect the complexity of ADHD and ADD. Patients and clinicians who rely on those official descriptions of symptoms really overlook three defining features of ADHD that are defined by Dr. Dodson as one, an interest-based nervous system, two, rejection-sensitive dysphoria, and three, intense emotional responsiveness. Today, Dr. Dawson will discuss how these three features affect the daily life of individuals with ADHD and how they also complicate diagnosis and treatment plans. If you don't know Dr. Dawson, let me introduce him. He is a board-certified psychiatrist who has specialized in adults with ADHD for the last 30 years, a formal faculty member at Georgetown University at the University of Colorado. Dr. Dawson is a Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association a member of Attitude's Medical Advisory Board. He's a regular columnist in Attitude Magazine and a contributor to AttitudeMag.com. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Dodson. We know how busy you are. I'd like to give a big thank you today to today's webinar sponsor, Play Attention. If you don't know Play Attention, you should. It's a comprehensive online program available for both children and adults. It's designed to strengthen executive function and self-regulation. Functions that are essential for controlling the ability to reason, our emotions and actions, all critical for success in our everyday lives. To learn more, please call 1-800-788-6786. That's 1-800-788-6786. Or log on to playattention.com to find out how Play Attention can be customized for you. Mention the code ADDWeb, ADDWeb, for a special discount offer for Attitude Webinar listeners. Again, 1-800-788-6786 or playattention.com for more information and to take advantage of this special offer with code ADDWEB. So with that and my thanks, let me turn it over to Dr. Dodson. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Bill Dodson. Uh, This whole presentation is based on an almost universal experience I have that when I meet somebody uh, as a uh, patient for the first time, I ask them what their understanding is of ADHD. Very rarely can I have somebody tell me more than, well, it's difficult to focus. Uh, It's almost as if, even though they live it every day of their lives, they can't articulate what ADHD is. And that's not at all unusual. For one reason, the diagnostic criteria were not made for you and I. Uh, They're made for um, researchers. And if you look at the 18 criteria that we use for ADHD, they really don't describe ADHD well at all. 
they happen to be 18 things that can be seen and counted so that they can then be measured and they can have nice statistics done. But they really don't describe ADHD uh, outside of elementary school. They have no interest in why things happen the way they do with people with ADHD. The DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and internationally for people who are outside of North America, the International Classification of Diseases 10, those criteria have never been validated in older adolescents, adults, and the elderly. They really only fit ages 6 through 12. Uh, this was supposed to have been corrected in the DSM-5, but the committee just dropped back and punted, uh, made everybody really angry that they did absolutely nothing. Um, initially, the childhood criteria uh, were to be continued because they established continuity between the childhood condition and adults, but even that wasn't uh, able to be done. Um, because it would re require an adult to be functioning on the level of an elementary school age child with untreated ADHD. Uh, somebody who was functioning on that level would have to be terribly impaired, almost non-functional. So most of this, when you have the diagnostic criteria that are not validated, puts most of the research done on late adolescents and adults uh, in doubt. Why should we care about this? Well, the diagnosis determines what gets researched and who the research subjects are. It determines who gets the diagnosis and who doesn't. It determines who gets treatment and insurance coverage. It determines who gets accommodations at school and work. And it determines what your clinician is taught about you and what you go through and how well they'll understand you. So it's very, very important. So... The main problem here is that the current way of thinking about ADHD has not really produced therapies that work. Uh, it used to be that the standard of care was multimodal therapy, which was just a code word for you have to do more than medication. For the last 10 years, uh, the recommendation for multimodal therapy has been dropped. It is no longer the standard of care. And now recommendation number 10 is that if a patient has a robust response to psychopharmacological treatment, then psychopharmacological treatment alone is satisfactory. Uh, this is because 82 studies in a row uh, on therapy of ADHD that didn't involve medication failed to show any detectable lasting benefits whatsoever. Uh, everything but medication has completely failed. Uh, you do see some benefits, but they are called nonspecific benefits. Quite literally, you could take the child out of the room into the hallway and any benefits disappeared. It was basically just the structure and not the child had changed at all. No one is happy about this. It's a major problem. So if you have tried everything you can think of and nothing's worked, join the crowd. Uh, join the field. Uh, everything we've tried uh, has failed. Uh, the other problem, of course, is that for most people uh, out there, you have to be hyperactive in order to get the diagnosis of ADHD, and really only about 20% of people are ever hyperactive. So why is nothing working? Uh, we have to really start over again in our understanding with no preconceived notions of what we're going to look for or find. Um, 
one of the most important features is that attention is not deficit, it's inconsistent. Just about everybody listening to this uh, webinar knows that three or four times every day of your life, you will get in the zone is the slang here in Denver. It's getting the flow on the East Coast. It's getting the groove in California, but it's the same thing. Uh, you'll get deeply engaged in what you're doing. And when you do, you don't have any impairments at all. Uh, this inconsistency of the ability to engage and function is perceived by others as being willful or defiant. You could do it if you really tried, um, which is not the case. Uh, people with ADHD are very inconsistent, but in a very consistent way. So it's vital to ask the right question. Looking back over your entire life, if you've been able to get engaged and stay engaged with literally any task of life, have you ever found something you couldn't do? I'd like everybody that's listening in to sort of answer that question in their heads. Because what most people will say is, you know, no, if I can get engaged, if I can get started, if I can stay in the flow, I can literally do anything. The word that's finally leaking out onto the Internet um, is people with ADHD are omnipotential. It's not an exaggeration. It's true. They really can do anything. So the three elements that uh, define ADHD uh, are things that everybody with ADHD much share in common and, and they experience in common, but no one who doesn't have ADHD uh, should have these features. They should also tell us why everything else has failed thus far and what might work instead. The first thing, and this really is probably the most important uh, thing that defines the syndrome, is the cognitive component of ADHD and interest-based nervous system. So ADHD is a genetic, neurological, brain-based difficulty with getting engaged as the situation demands. People with ADHD are able uh, to get engaged and have their performance, their mood, their energy level determined by the momentary sense of four things. Interest, for those people who are psychologists out there in your literature is listed under fascination. Challenge or competition, novelty or creativity, and a sense of urgency, usually brought on by a deadline. So let's look at each of those individually because each has a, uh, its own implications. ADHD is biological and brain-based. That means it runs in families. Up to 50% of your first-degree relatives are also going to have an ADHD-style nervous system. It means that if a child has ADHD, at least one parent will also have ADHD. ADHD is not a factor of poor parenting, not trying hard enough. It's not a factor of lazy or willful children. ADHD is a genetic condition. It's hardwired into people's neurology. It also means that ADHD does not go away with age, ever. What people do is they outgrow the childhood criteria, but not the disorder itself. It also means that ADHD cannot be treated by those 82 behavioral techniques any more than you can lower any physiological experience, any genetic or neurological condition with a behavioral technique. It makes about as much sense as trying to lower a fever with behavioral techniques. It just doesn't happen. 
if a person with ADHD can get engaged, they can do anything. This is the omnipotential. The problem is they can't do it on demand. Uh, they can only do it when they get in the flow and stay in the flow. Performance. Usually when I'm talking with somebody for the first time, pretty much all that we talk about is performance, performance enhancement, getting work done, getting school done easily, quickly, well, and getting it done now. No procrastination. But your nervous system is a package deal. Uh, it's everything that you are, so that when you're not in the zone, people with ADHD, when they're bored, have no energy at all. They're irritable. They're very negative. They don't like themselves. They don't like you. The future holds nothing that they want any part of. Blech. Um, people with ADHD will do almost anything to relieve this. They'll use drugs. They'll uh, be risk-taking. They'll pick a fight with somebody just to get out of the doldrums. But as soon as a person gets engaged through interest, challenge, novelty, or urgency, they are instantly energetic, positive, gregarious. And a lot of times this sudden shift from the outside looks as if it's uh, bipolar disorder. They don't see that uh, the person was initially uh, bored and now they're engaged. And that was the cause of the switch in uh, energy and mood. So the problem is that interest, challenge, novelty, and urgency are very personal and subjective features. Life requires that we get engaged with important activities as the situation demands, not according to how we're feeling. Something that might be interesting today, it might not be interesting next week. Something that was a challenge that was mastered can't be used again. So right, people with ADHD live right now. Uh, they have to be personally interested, challenged, and find it novel or urgent right now, this instant, where nothing happens because they can't get engaged with the task. Uh, the one thing that might be added to this is down on the bottom. Uh, our colleagues at the Cleveland Clinic are trying to add a fifth way of getting engaged, and they call it passion. What is it about your life that gives your life meaning, purpose? Uh, what is it that you're eager to get up and go do in the morning? Unfortunately, only about one in four people ever discover what that is. Uh, but it is probably the most reliable way of staying in the zone uh, that we know of. The other thing is that people with ADHD do not fit in any school system, with the possible exception of the Montessori system. All schools are based on what we call secondhand importance. The ADHD nervous system doesn't do importance when it's in uh, firsthand, but schools are secondhand importance. What does somebody else, your teacher, think is important enough to teach and important enough to put on the test because it's important that you know it 10 years from now? This is utterly and completely useless to a kid with ADHD. And the problem is it doesn't end there. It also happens in about 90% of jobs. What is it that the boss, the first or second line manager, thinks important enough to him or her that they're willing to pay you to do it for them? Uh, again, uh, for a person with an ADHD-style interest-based nervous system, these motivations are utterly useless and just a frustration. 
let's contrast this to the other 90% of people out there who are referred to not as being normal or better in any way. They are referred to as being neurotypical. Uh, it's just that there's more of them. Uh, for those folks, they can use not only importance uh, to themselves, but also importance to other people like their boss, their teacher, their spouse, etc. And the task doesn't have to be important right now. It, has, it may be important that you know this years from now. Consequently, people with uh, importance-based nervous systems can prioritize. They can decide what the one most important thing at this instant in time is and get engaged with that one thing without being distracted. Uh, that means that the importance of the task helps neurotypical people engage as the situation demands, get access to their intellect and abilities reliably every time, and then stick with the uh, task all the way to the payoff. If you ask a person with ADHD, uh, if you has the importance of the task ever once in your life been useful to you, a person with ADHD with honesty can say no. Yeah, importance, rewards, and consequences are nothing but a nag to me. So this is where we can get that first pathognomonic sign. We can say always and never. A person with ADHD is able to say, I have always been able to do anything I've wanted to do so long as I could get engaged through interest, challenge, novelty, urgency, and perhaps passion. And I have never once in my life been able to make use of the three things that organize and motivate everybody else, importance, rewards, and consequences. There are implications to this as well. Not being able to make use of importance makes decision-making almost impossible. Um, if importance and priority do not organize and motivate us, and if what we get out of a particular choice does not matter to us at all. All choices look the same. All starting points look the same. They're all sort of shades of gray. That makes planning and organization very difficult. You don't know what your goals are. Most planning systems are built for people who are neurotypical because they are uh, based on two things that the ADHD nervous system doesn't do, importance and time. Uh, think about Franklin Covey. Decide what's really important and stay focused on what's really important. Consequently, Franklin Covey is nothing more than a setup for failure to people with ADHD. People with ADHD tend to work backwards from the end to the beginning. People with ADHD wait into the middle of a problem that has stumped everybody else. Uh, they start working in all directions at once until suddenly they just know the answer. It's called saltatory or leaping. And from experience, they know when they're right and when they're not. They then have to work backwards from that point to the beginning to explain to everybody why that's the right answer. Uh, I love this line. This comes from James Bailey down in Mobile. Uh, it comes from a book uh, from 1903. He threw himself out the door, threw himself on his horse, and rode off in all directions. So, this tells us that the management of ADHD has two pieces. The one that we've been doing particularly well is leveling the neurologic playing field with medication. What the stimulant class medications do it's spectacularly well is that when we're engaged, it keeps us from being distracted. 
but it, this begged the question of how do people with ADHD get engaged in the first place, and the fact that it is uh, a totally different way than neurotypical people do. So the way it's being conceptualized now is that what goes wrong for people with ADHD is that they're given the wrong owner's manual for their nervous system back in preschool. Uh, everything that they're offered by helpful people and that they see working great for other people uh, doesn't work for them. So you have to have both pieces. You have to be able to help the person get engaged uh, on demand right now, and then you need the medications to keep them from being distracted. This owner's manual is going to be highly personal and individual. It will change over time. Uh, there's no generic one-size-fits-all owner's manual. Uh, so that's a whole topic in and of itself. We need to move on to emotional management. There are two types of emotional problems. I'm only going to talk about one of them. Uh, the first one is the fact that people with ADHD lead intense, passionate lives. If they don't care about something, it's not in their life at all. So consequently, everything that's left behind are things about which they care very intensely. The one that we're going to talk about today is an intense vulnerability to the perception that you've been rejected or criticized by other people. And this is something that is unique to people with ADHD. So this is also where self-esteem comes from. Um, kids don't buy into this everybody gets a trophy uh, business. Uh, they know if they fall short. And for people with ADHD, they really know it. It has a huge emotional component. Self-esteem and self-worth come from only one source. And that has, it has to be built on something very real. And that's what we call self-efficacy. Being able to go out there and do what you want to do now. Uh, being able to say, I have done it, is where uh, people get self-esteem uh, and self-worth. So one of the things that people with ADHD need in order to get to that point in their lives is that they need somebody, and I'm not real fond of this term, they need somebody who is a cheerleader. I would think of it more as a vessel that holds the memory of the child as uh, a good and worthwhile person. This can be anybody. Ideally, it would be both parents, but it can also be an older sibling, uh, a grandparent, a teacher, a coach, the person who lives next door. And they are able to hold the memory of the person with ADHD as a good, likable, capable person. And they are able to do this, especially when things go wrong. Uh, this much be, must be absolutely sincere because uh, children are great falseness detectors. Um, and again, the worst part of being ashamed is be al being alone with it. So what uh, the person needs to be able to say is something to the effect of, I know you, you're a good person. If anybody could have overcome these problems by hard work and just sheer ability, it would have been you. So what that tells me is that there's something we don't see that's getting in your way, and I want you to know I will be there with you all the way until uh, we figure out what it is and we master that problem. Um, the person is not left alone, or even worse, they're not blamed for falling short. 
because then you get the really difficult thing of what's called rejection-sensitive dysphoria, and this is the emotional component of ADHD. So the question on our checklist is very simple. For your entire life, have you always been much more sensitive than other people you know to rejection, teasing, criticism, or your own perception that you have failed or fallen short? Virtually 100% of people uh, with ADHD will answer that question positively, and for 30% of adolescents and adults, rejection sensitivity is the most impairing part of their ADHD. Uh, this is a terribly, terribly painful experience, and it's triggered by the perception or the possibility, it doesn't have to be the reality, that someone has withdrawn their love, approval, respect, that they've disappointed somebody that's important to them, or they've done it to themselves because they didn't meet their own very high standards for performance. It's hard to really uh, emphasize too much how primitive this emotional reaction is. People, even though it's an intense, overwhelming emotional experience, cannot find words to describe it. They can talk about its intensity, it's awful, it's terrible, but not the quality of it. Uh, the word dysphoria is actually Greek for unbearable, because most people will say, I can't find the words to tell you what it feels like, but I want you to know I can hardly stand it. Very commonly, people will experience it as a physical pain, as if they've been stabbed or struck right in the center of their chest. The problem is that usually this intense emotional reaction is hidden from other people. They don't talk about it uh, due to the shame over their lack of control or because they don't want other people to know this intense vulnerability. Uh, it's, you have to emphasize that rejection sensitivity, likewise, is genetically uh, hardwired into our nervous system. Uh, now, certainly, any traumatic event in childhood can make anything worse, but it does not cause rejection sensitivity. It is there in literally everybody with ADHD. I have one particular patient who is in psychoanalysis for 10 years trying to do something about their rejection sensitivity and made no progress whatsoever. So it's one of those things that, as far as I can tell, only responds to, uh, a, to uh, the uh, alpha agonist type medications. Uh, and I think that re rejection sensitivity and dysphoria is one of the three fundamental features of ADHD. If this catastrophic emotional experience is internalized, it looks like an instantaneous major depression complete with suicidal thoughts and impulses. Uh, it also earns a person the reputation of being a head case because suddenly they're so distraught they have to be talked in off the ledge. Uh, if it's externalized, it's externalized in a flash of rage at the person or situation that wounded them so severely. Uh, people try and deal with this by becoming people pleasers. Uh, they put huge amounts of time and effort into making sure that everybody in their universe is pleased and happy with them, so much so that they very often forget what they wanted from their own lives. 
Uh, this can result in a great deal of resentment when the person hits their mid-40s, sort of, when is it going to be my turn? The other very common uh, way of trying to deal with things is just to stop trying altogether. Uh, unless they have been completely assured in advance of quick, complete, and easy success, they don't start at all. If there's a possibility of going out in front of everybody and failing, no, thank you. I will sit this one out. Uh, these folks are the slackers of the world, people who are wonderful people of great ability, but who do nothing with their lives and are generally described as being lazy rather than panic-stricken with fear. Uh, there are two medications that are FDA-approved for the treatment of ADHD that have a very good, uh, almost curative effect on ADHD. These are guanfacine and clonidine. They came on the market in the early 1980s. The problem is that only about one out of three people uh, gets benefits for their rejection sensitivity from either medication. Luckily, though, these are two very different molecules. So if the first one doesn't work, you can stop that one and try the other one so that um, uh, ultimately there's about a 60 to 65% very robust uh, response. Uh, people report feeling at peace, not sedated, but peaceful. They feel like they have on emotional armor. They still see the same things happening out there that would have wounded them. Uh, last week, but now it just sort of bounces off without uh, causing them any harm. Uh, and they also report that rather than the three or four simultaneous thoughts, uh, they now have just one thought at a time. So uh, the third piece, which uh, we skipped over, is an internal sense of hyperarousal. Um, most people expect people with ADHD to be hyper-aroused and hyperactive uh, very visibly when really this only happens in about 25% of children and only about 5% of adults where you see the hyper-arousal in adolescents and adults is they can't turn off their brains and bodies to go to sleep at night and they have two or three simultaneous thoughts going on in their heads at all times. Uh, their brains are constantly doing something. So these are the three pieces of ADHD, a nervous system that works perfectly well, uh, emphasis on the word perfect, they've never found anything they couldn't do, but it works on the basis of interest, challenge, novelty, urgency, and perhaps passion, and it doesn't work at all on the basis of importance, rewards, and consequences. It's also rejection-sensitive dysphoria. And the third element is an internal sense of hyperarousal. These three things can uh, pretty much explain every feature of ADHD and why uh, everything has failed up till now. So at this point, I'll send it back to Susan, uh, who can uh, help us with some of the questions. Thank you so much. That was fascinating. Um, it's an interesting one. How do you differentiate between rejection sensitive <clears throat> dysphoria and social anxiety? That somebody's very uh, knowledgeable there. That uh, is the big differential that you have to make. Uh, and of course, there's absolutely no reason why somebody couldn't have won the negative genetic lottery and have both of them. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, social anxiety or social anxiety disorder is an intense anticipatory fear. 
In other words, it's prior to going out into public, and the person fears that they're going to say or do something that's going to embarrass or humiliate them. Uh, or even if they behave perfectly, uh, people are still scrutinizing them and judging them. Once they actually get into the situation and they're dealing with the reality of it, um, they're just fine. Rejection sensitivity, on the other hand, is uh, something that is perceived uh, as having actually have happened. Uh, somebody, you've disappointed somebody, somebody's withdrawn their love, approval, respect, uh, you've been criticized, and as such, it has a trigger, and it goes forward from that trigger. Uh, again, that's a fairly subtle distinction with social anxiety being before the event and rejection sensitivity being after an event, whether the event is real or imagined. So that that's about the only way I can really distinguish between the two. It's interesting. Okay, great. Um, a number of people are curious uh, to know more about your statement that cognitive behavior therapy doesn't work. Um, and one person specifically says that she feels that his changed her for the better by allowing her to uh, rethink the negative thoughts that are coming into her mind as she feels rejected. Um, So, um, and then I guess the other question that's coming up is, you know, is, is it really just a waste of time to people who are going to great lengths to find and pay for, you know, cognitive behavior therapy are asking. No, that's a very important distinction. I'm sorry. I I, uh, left that impression. Um, Perhaps a better way to have said it is that cognitive behavioral therapy, behavior management, all of these 82 failed therapies did not change the core symptoms of ADHD, inattention, impulsivity, hyperarousal. Those are still there. Now, you still need cognitive behavioral therapy to deal with those core features. So they work very well, again, to deal with those thoughts when they do come into their head, but it doesn't prevent them from coming in your head to begin with. So, yeah, for instance, the analogy I used of uh, somebody with emotional armor, um, once once they do find an alpha agonist medication that works, they still have to do some work to go back and realize that they weren't arrows to begin with. but I would tell you that it's a heck of a lot easier when you when you don't feel like you're dodging arrows all the time to do that cognitive behavioral work. Okay. Um, yeah. So co- not writing off cognitive behavior therapy, just saying. No, it doesn't affect the, the it, core features. Oh, right. Exactly. Okay. Got it. That's great. Um, number of questions here from people who perceive that their children with ADHD are just have given up our slackers. I mean, these are, these are some of the words that have been posted. Um, um, and I wonder, you know, you mentioned that, that this um, fear of rejection might be behind what's going on. It seems to be a very common, we hear it often at attitude from parents of teens, young teens, especially. Um, what are your thoughts on how parents can cope with that and how to differentiate between regular symptoms of ADHD and something more serious um, yeah, the the thing that always has to be um, uh, teased apart is whether the child is demoralized or depressed. Uh, and again, that's why I think it's so important to acknowledge that 
the people who have ADHD and their parents who love them are going through the exact same thing that the field is going through, and that is that so much of what we've offered really doesn't work very well. Um, in fact, sometimes it doesn't work at all. And so a lot of times kids are, are saying, look, I have tried hard. I have tried everything I can think of and nothing works. I'm hopeless because everything I've tried uh, has failed just the way it has failed in, in very well-designed therapeutic programs. And so I, I just give up. It hurts to care anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, parents say the same thing. They said, we've tried everything we can think of. We've tried bribing him for better grades. We've tried taking away his Nintendo. Uh, we've tried punishing him, and nothing works. Again, those, those are motivators for neurotypical kids. Uh, you do it because it's important. There's a reward for doing it, or there's a consequence if they don't. I mean, how many parents out there have just sort of thrown their hands up and said, I give up. We, I've tried everything I can think of, and nothing works. Literally, that email comes to attitude, I would say, once a day from someone who says, I've tried everything, nothing works, my, no. my child has given up, what do I do? Yeah. yeah. So that, that's why it's important to go back and say, you have to do it your way. Trying to do it in a neurotypical way that's based on importance, rewards, and consequences is just going to frustrate the bejesus out of you. Instead, go back and look at those times when you can do anything, when you are omnipotential and superhuman. Write those down so that when you are presented with a task that's, uh, that's not interesting, challenging, novel, or urgent, you can use one of these techniques, get in the zone, and get the task done. Uh, again, it's, it's, ADHD is not a disorder. It's a second nervous system. It's a second nervous system that works perfectly well just by a totally different set of rules, principles, techniques, methods, whatever you want to call them, than are taught in the standard school system. Uh, or if you're a neurotypical parent, that work perfectly well for you and don't work at all for your uh, ADHD child. Okay. Um, along those same lines, we have a couple of questions from people who are asking how to motivate a child, a 13-year-old in one case, a 12-year-old in another, um, who are not doing well in school primarily because of problems with homework, rote memorization, um, not turning in assignments, um, and I guess they're wondering how to, how to motivate a child who's, who has ADHD and has these symptoms and also how to do that without having huge disagreements flaring okay. up. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, asking people to do repetitive rote memorization type stuff um, is um, basically asking them to do something where the only possibility is that they fail. So if you get pushback, it's quite understandable. Mm -hmm. Most of these things should be addressed in a real well-written and then well-implemented uh, 504 plan uh, that if... Um, uh, homework, for instance, is really not contributing to the child's education and only pulling down their grades, then it needs to be removed and something else put in its place. Just about everybody with ADHD uh, and uh, who has a child with ADHD knows that when you get engaged, there's no stopping them. 
Mm-hmm. It's, not that, it's not that kids with ADHD are, are unmotivated. It's just that they're not motivated for the things the parent is motivated for. So if you can, again, find out those things which motivate the child uh, and use those as a way of getting access to them. Um, so finding out what's interesting for them and uh, helping them rework through a 504 plan what the assignment is. Okay. Yeah, we've actually, that's been a common recommendation. I think parents struggle with how to implement it, but is find your child's passion and interest and encourage that as opposed to trying to fit them into the, yeah. the classic box. And, and, to rec- and to recognize that the classic box is, is soul killing. Right. Um, uh, we here, we feel like we've done just an absolutely spectacular job. If we can get a kid all the way to high school graduation without the school system damaging the kid, you know, convincing him that he's stupid, lazy, crazy, uh, bad kid, behavior problem, bad attitude, I mean, you know, on and on and on, rather than they shouldn't be in a standard school system. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, there's some interest, uh, Dr. Dawson, your comment about the Montessori system possibly being um, ideal. Can you um, amplify a bit that on that? Yeah. The Montessori system works on the basis of interest. It's a big open room. The kid walks in. The teacher looks to see what the kid is already interested in and doing with, playing with, and they then teach that day's lesson through what the child is already engaged with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's the only uh, pedagogical system that I know of that works through interest. Uh, and again, momentary interested. What is the kid interested in now? Right. Not just in general, but now. Uh, the problem is that most Montessori schools only go through the eighth grade. Uh, and then they leave and get dumped back into a standard, uh, you do this because the teacher thinks it's important, Um style of uh, school system where they really don't uh, thrive at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. In, in Montessori, literally children pick up, as they call it, the work that they're interested in from the shelf. It's really fascinating. Right. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit, just to jump back to diagnosis, to the misdi- about the misdiagnosis of bipolar versus ADHD depression? I f- we feel like that's something that is a common um, issue for for depressed ADHDers. Okay, it, it goes back to the whole definition of what a mood disorder is. A mood disorder is an unpleasant mood, um, very unpleasant mood, that has taken on a life of its own, separate from the events of the person's life and outside of their conscious will and control. That's word for word out of the diagnostic manual and that is sustained for at least two weeks. In other words, there's this slow, gradual onset of a depression um, that they stay depressed without a break for at least two weeks, and then when it resolves, it resolves very slowly. People who have ADHD are going to have very intense responses, both going up and going down, but it's going to be in response to a trigger It's going to match their perception of what that trigger was. The mood shift is going to be instantaneous. In other words, these are normal moods in every way except their intensity. Um, Also, you're going to see um, that the mood is rarely sustained for the rest of the day. 
uh, much less two weeks. Uh, you'll also see that people with uh, ADHD, half of their first-degree relatives will have ADHD. Um, the penetrance for bipolar disorder, which is also genetic, is only about 7%, uh, not 50%. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, ADHD has a much earlier onset. It's sort of the screen against which a person plays out their entire lives. It's always there as far back as anybody can remember, whereas bipolar disorder usually has its onset uh, on average at age 18 with the first uh, diagnosis occurring at age 26. So for people who have both ADHD and bipolar, they have the ADHD and then the bipolar is layered on top of that in late adolescence. Okay. I mean, do you, are you, um, sometimes we've been told that um, teens who have extreme temper issues and anger could possibly be actually bipolar. Are you of that mind? When, sure. That, that's, yeah. that's how um, uh, it presents in children and adolescents. Um, bipolar usually, in fact, rarely in children and adolescents, has the euphoric on top of the world presentation. Instead, it's usually an intense irritability with mm -hmm. blow-ups of temper, what are called affective or emotional storms. Uh, and if you've ever seen one, it is impressive. You will never forget it. Right. But it, is, it is more than just temper tantrums. Um, uh, the affective storms of bipolar uh, go on for six to eight hours. Um, one, of, one of the ways, this is not official, but it's probably one of the most reliable ways I know to differentiate between the two, is you ask the parent, have you ever been scared of your child? Mm -hmm. uh, parents of a child with bipolar will very sheepishly say, yeah, we have, we've taken all the knives out of the kitchen and stuff like that. Uh, the parents of a kid with bipolar say, what are you talking about? He's the sweetest kid in the world, except okay. when he has a temper tantrum. Right. Uh, so that's really interesting because some people are asking questions about how do you help your adult partner who has RSD recover from, quote, an episode? Should an episode be that intense as to require that kind of question? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, one of the slides I sort of shot by there had a uh, study that was done in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on people who were court-mandated for anger management, uh, either for road rage or for um, uh, domestic violence. And what they found was that 50% of people had previously unrecognized ADHD. Mm -hmm. So these uh, outbursts of temper uh, and rage when the person perceives they've been criticized or rejected uh, can be very big things. Uh, I have one guy who's a tremendously strong guy. He had road rage and bent his steering wheel in double. Oh. Uh, this, <laughs> this is not a guy that you really want to, to piss off. Um, but it, it's, it's a very big thing. And it's, uh, again, the ADHD is missed because the anger uh, is so overwhelming, not just to uh, the person who's viewing it, but also the person who has it. Okay. So back to then this question from, quote, how can family members support an adult or cope with an adult, a partner who has these issues? Well, the, the friendliest thing you can do is get them to a good, competent physician who would be willing to do uh, one or two trials on um, 
alpha agonist medications because those can essentially just take rejection sensitivity away. Okay. Uh, it really, I can always tell when those medications have worked because the next session when the person comes back, it's not a nice handshake, hello, Dr. Dodson. It's this huge bear hug um, because in terms of just quality of life, uh, treating the rejection sensitivity with an alpha agonist makes more difference than the performance enhancement they got with the stimulant. Interesting. Wow. So in terms of dealing with it, the RSD, um, question, interesting question here from a number of people. Can you have rejection sensitivity, um, dis rejection sensitive dysphoria without having ADHD? Are they independent of one the, another? The answer is nobody knows for sure. Okay. Uh, is um, rejection sensitive dysphoria for, I guess, since the very beginning uh, was the hallmark symptom of what uh, your average shrink would call atypical or non-typical depression. And the, the reason it wasn't typical depression was it didn't have a single feature of a mood disorder. Um, so it is the, the working premise right now is that, um, uh, it, that it really is a hallmark of ADHD and pretty much only ADHD. There's another condition called hysteroid dysphoria. Uh, the people who are listening in from Europe may be more familiar with that term. And that's uh, basically what um, uh, in Europe um, would be the term for what we would call somebody who has a borderline character organization. Okay. Which can look very similar again. Right. That, there are some questions about that as well. Borderline personality disorder. How does that look similar or different? from ADHD. You know, it looks very, very similar because it, the trigger for these tremendous emotional swings is an interpersonal trigger. Something happened between two people uh, and um, the identified patient um, uh, feels this intense emotional abandonment. Um, and the, the way you tell the difference is, that, again, this is going to get into a, a very technical term. You have to evaluate the person's object relations. Uh, how does a person historically uh, deal with other people in their lives? Uh, and that takes about four or five hours of uh, time with a good, well-trained psychiatrist to make mm -hmm. that distinction. But okay. for all the world, they look the same. Interesting. Wow. Um, on a question on medication, are the medications that you've noted that work for RSD, should they be, are they, can they be used in combination for other medications for ADHD? They, they almost always are used in combination with the stimulant class medications. Okay. Uh, they're used together so commonly that the FDA approves them for use together. Uh, which is a somewhat rare thing for the FDA to, to do. Uh, each medication hits a different aspect of the ADHD syndrome. Uh, the stimulants help with sustained engagement with a task, and they do that beautifully. They keep people from being uh, distracted, but the stimulants don't hit other aspects, which the alpha agonists do hit, and that is multiple, sim uh, multiple simultaneous thoughts, uh, the fact that the ADHD brain has to be doing something all the time. People with ADHD rarely know peace. And, of course, mm -hmm. the rejection sensitivity. All three of those things respond beautifully to uh, an alpha agonist. 
Interesting. Okay. So do you find that most, I'll ask, I'll ask the listeners to, to comment on this. Do most psychiatrists understand this? Are they, are they willing to prescribe multiple medications in this way? Um, oh, uh, Susan, you know that this is the question <laughs> that gets asked in every webinar. Right. And that is, how do you find a, a, a physician, a clinician of some sort, who knows what they're doing with ADHD? Um, there was a, a study done at uh, the Mayo Clinic back when uh, Peter Jensen was there. And what they found was that the average family went through 11 clinicians on average before they found one they thought was competent to treat their child. 11 That's, clinicians. Wow. Yeah. The average adult will go through six physicians uh, and be treated um, with, um, excuse me, they'll go through 3.2 physicians and have 6.6 antidepressant trials. And this is when they're telling the doctor the diagnosis of ADHD. They still cannot get the doctor to recognize ADHD when it's there. So finding a doctor is the biggest hurdle hurdle by far. So no, it is by no means uh, commonly or universally known because ADHD is not commonly or universally known. Yeah, we did a survey, as you may know, of our readers, 4,000 of whom told us about treating ADHD. And to a person, they talked about how difficult it was to find good help and to manage it themselves as they tried different options. Um, A lot of interest from the listeners in your concept of an owner's manual. Building an owner's manual. Can you talk a bit about a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, let me see if I can go backwards. No, nope, I'm stuck. Um, there, there was a slide there about some of the different techniques that uh, people use uh, for kids. Uh, one of the best is what we call a uh, body double uh, to be able to do homework. Uh, you sit down with another person who has the ability to get engaged, and they use that ability to get engaged. I give the example of uh, doing math homework with my own daughter. Uh, we'd sit down after uh, dinner at the dinner table. I'd sit with her, get you know the first two or three problems done. Then I would go over, start washing dishes. And after about 20 minutes, I'd hear this grumbling from over there at the table that her math teacher was the spawn of Satan. And I knew it was time to go over and sit down with her again and go get her back engaged and doing math homework again. Uh, one of the other techniques is engage in should be injecting interest. Uh, the example I give of that is taking a uh, an otherwise um, boring task and through imagination um, transforming it. The example I give is of one of the physicians here tells a story on himself of when he was in uh, his first year of medical school. He was flunking out because the first year is nothing but. Um, uh, gross anatomy, and he was just bored to death with it. And so he, one of the teachers took him aside and said, I think the problem here is you're just bored with this. Um, and they tried to figure out one of the ways you know, ways to get back engaged with it. But one of the, he asked him, when you were a kid, was there anybody that you just looked up to and idolized? And he said, yeah, uh, John Kennedy. It just really tore me up when he was murdered. He says, great, I want you to use your imagination. Imagine that you're now an emergency room physician at Parkland 
Memorial Hospital in Dallas. They just wheeled in John Kennedy, and he's got a bullet wound to his neck because they were studying the anatomy of the neck at the time. And you've got to know the anatomy of the neck cold in order to save Kennedy's life. Oh, wow. With that, he had passion, interest, urgency, uh, and using that and other techniques, he ultimately graduated number two in his class, um, going from having almost flunked out in his first year to graduating number two. Uh, and again, he has hundreds of techniques. Wow, it's fascinating. So again, it's it's each each individual person. You recognize you are in the zone when you come out of the zone. When you're in the zone, you and what you're doing become one. So it's recognizing when you got in the zone, what got you there. Another quick example is a challenge. Um, if you say, ah, oh, Susan, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Most people with ADHD are going to go, oh, yeah, challenge accepted. Right. And from experience, they know that when that happens, it doesn't matter what the challenge was, they're going to have it mastered today. And so, again, it's catching those subtle moments when they slide into the zone and become superhuman. So fascinating. Okay. Um, Gee, one last question. This is tough. There's so many good ones here. How, this is from a parent who says, how do I discipline my child when it tends to provoke a rejection um, reaction? I'm guessing the answer is discipline might be the wrong word. I'll let you answer that. <laughs> oh, that 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 would to answer that. There's no way to avoid being glib. That, <laughs> that's one of the, that's one of the toughest things that a parent has to do. Uh, and again, with the limitations of time, about the only thing I can say is uh, try to do it pre-need. Um, mm-hmm. Try to avoid uh, those situations. Um, that have caused explosions in the past right. by teaching your child how to get these things done um, and approaching him again as that cheerleader who always remembers them as a good person who mm-hmm. is hardworking, who's clever, who's bright, and who has something in their way that we really just don't fully understand yet. But there are things that do work. And approaching him from that point of view, rather than, let me tell you all the things you've done wrong. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Dodson, thank you as always for contributing such a really fresh and helpful approach to ADHD. We're very grateful. Thanks, everybody. For more Attitude Podcast and information on living well with attention deficit, visit AttitudeMag.com. That's A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E-M-A-G.com. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot. How doers get more done.